I think the peace process started when John Hume wrote that first document towards the New Ireland in which he spelt out what needed to be done, recognise the Unionists' right to be British, also need to accommodate the nationalist aspiration of an All-Ireland and you'd have to find institutions that... And what year did he write that, Reid, remind us? 1972. Hello again. You're very welcome to the Insights podcast with Sean O'Rourke, Breed Rogers. It's wonderful to see you again and to get your reflections on a lifetime in politics, mostly in Northern Ireland, some of it indeed in the South. The various offices you've held, you've been uh, chair of the SDLP, you've been general secretary, you've been deputy leader, you were agriculture minister in the first uh, executive after the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, you were a member of the Shannon here for a few years in the 80s. Uh, but look, the first thing I have to say to you is, and I know it's not right to ask a woman about her age, but for somebody of 88 years, you are in fantastic shape <laughs> physically and mentally. You better explain that to us. <laughs> I suppose I could put it down to uh, the fact that I that when the men all I was the only woman for a long time, you know, in that group of men, and when they all retired to the pub or whatever it was, I had to rush home because I had at that stage I had four kids, so I did I lived a re- reasonably <laughs> quiet life. Yeah, um, and and you grew up initially in in Donegal, uh, in in West Donegal. Uh, in Guidor, um, as indeed did your husband, your late husband, Anton. Um, but was there something about the air up there? I know you go back there quite regularly and you'll be <laughs> going there very soon again after this conversation. Yeah. It is, you know, it's like a release. I mean, when when I when Anton died two years ago and I decided to sell Lurgan because a few of my other friends had died too, and I moved back to Donegal, and uh, people said to me, oh, God, you're going back to Donegal and the health service and all the rest of it and it'll be awful. And you know what? I went back to Donegal. Well, we'd been going for years anyway, you know, every holiday, every chance we got. It was just, I was as happy, you know, I was kind of back to my roots as if I'd never left it. And, you know, half the people there are my second cousins or whatever, you know, and Anton's cousins and... I know, I know everybody. There was something, something about Donegal. It's just people. It seems a bit. I don't want to be just bigoted about Donegal, but people in Donegal are very open and very friendly, and uh, everyone talks to you. Well, they know you are not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've noticed that as well. Maybe not as much as you, but look, um, you were in Bridge. You were in at the start of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland uh, over half a century ago, um, and. You said there just a couple of minutes ago that, you know, for a long time, you were the only woman in the thick of it. Um, and was that a, was that something that you felt quite conscious of and that you had to kind of take on and to be assertive yeah. and to not well, be I wasn't, run over? I wasn't the only woman in, this, in the actual civil rights movement because, you know, there were a number of women who would have been they were from all different political persuasions. For instance, Bernadette Devlin, who who was actually very feisty. And there was Edwina Stewart, who was Protestant from East Belfast, who lost her job because she stood on a civil rights platform and she lost her teaching job, you know. So there were women involved. It wasn't politics as such. It was a, a movement for rights. But then when I, when I joined the SDLP, which came st- straight after, I realised... When good when civil rights began to disintegrate because a lot of people with different agendas were trying to use it, 
and it kind of fell apart. And at that stage, I never intended to be a politician. But I realised then that that you had to have a group of people who would have a mandate and who would be able to uh, affect change. And then when the SDLP was formed, as it was, for, as you know, it was formed by six men in in Guidor in Donegal. That's where the and, and where were you when that was actually happening? I was actually at that stage, you know, I the civil rights thing had kind of you know disintegrated, and I was just rearing six kids or whatever it was, and uh, I, I was delighted anyway. You know, actually, I remember going to see a guy who'd been in civil rights with me. He was from Fermanagh. I think of his name now. He was he was lecturing in the College of Education in Belfast, and I remember going to see him and saying to him, you know. He was a friend of John Hume's too because he was from Derry and I said, you know, you have to get a John to set up a party because that's what we need, you know. And he agreed with me. So um, I didn't get involved in the very, very beginning because I had six kids, you know, and a lot of commitments that way. And then I I was annoyed because uh, I don't think there was a branch maybe in Lurgan at that stage. It was very, very early days. And something was going on in Lurgan Council that I was very annoyed about. And I wrote to John and I said, you know, this is happening in Lurgan. What, what, are, what are you and the SDLP doing about it? And John just wrote me back one line. What are you doing about it? <laughs> so that, that was, that was his answer. Kurt. Yeah, Kurt, what are you doing about it? Like I would have known him well through the civil rights movement, you know. So I joined and of course I became secretary on the first night, <laughs> not chairman. Of the, of the local branch. Of the local branch. Yeah. But um, I didn't become the chairman till till they realised that maybe I was capable of it. But how had you ended up in Lurgan in the first place, Breed? Your husband, Anton, you were both from Guidor. Yeah. He was a dentist. Uh, yeah. You were you were a teacher. Uh, so how did you end up in Lurgan? It, it's well, an unlikely place and one might have thought it, it was is. an unlikely well, place. Well, Anton, Anton had gone... He 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 was a dentist in Pontcranna for a while, and then he he gave two years to the medical missionaries of Mary. He said he he offered to go because they had no dentist in the whole of eastern Nigeria. They had no dentist, so he went. He gave them two years voluntary work. I knew him as a neighbour, like he was, he was you know he was about eight or nine years older than me, and in those days that was a lot, you know, and. Uh, anyway, he went uh, to the missions. He came back from the missions and. Then we sort of started going out together, and then we got married. But in that, in the meantime, he had set up a practice in Lurgan because his best friend, who was a dentist, uh, was selling his practice. He was going into business, and he contacted Anthony and said, "We just so he bought the practice in Lurgan." So that's how he ended up in Lurgan. And then, before the SDLP happened, you were involved in the civil rights movement, and yeah, so I think uh, Dr. Con McCluskey and his yeah. wife Patricia, oh, yeah. I think yeah. it was. That's how um, it was. And. Initially, you you were you were compiling. That was a lot of what he did, and you did it as well. Yeah. Compiling information about the kind of discrimination that was going on. Oh yes, you see, it used to annoy me looking at TV, and you'd see unionist. There'd be a unionist MP and someone from the nationalist, and uh, be talking about discrimination, and the unionists would say that was all nonsense. That's just that's just IRA propaganda. That's not true. And I saw when I went to live in Lurgan that it was true. Because, you know, if you were a Catholic, well, if you if you were teaching, you'd get into a, a school, all right, uh, or you could get to work in a pub, which was mostly owned by Catholics. But any job at all outside of that was not open to Catholics. And uh, Con McCluskey, whom I kind of got to know socially, got in touch with me and said, we're setting up this 
uh, campaign for social justice that they want to gather statistics with a help and he said they couldn't get anyone to help. See, people didn't want to get involved. You know, the unionists were in control. So I said, OK, and it was a lot of work and Anthony helped me a lot because actually we got a lot of the figures through a patient of Anthony's who happened to work in the tax office and the tax office didn't come under the Northern Ireland Stormont. It came under the British... Uh, revenue. And what kind of facts then did you come across? Well, that? we came across, first of all, in the local uh, hospital, uh, the majority of the nurses were Catholics and there was one sister and she was a night sister because nobody wanted to be the night sister because you were always on night duty. And uh, in the local council, we got the figures for that. Uh, now, I remember at that time, Lurgan was about 45% Catholic. You know, in the local council, there was no employee in the council area, you know, clerical officer or anything like that. There was one woman employed as a cleaner in the swimming pool and there was one guy involved in the, in the town hall as a back totem sort of. And apart from that, the only other Catholics were the, 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 the workers who worked on the roads and that in the wintertime. And I know that very tough work. And 25% of those were Catholic. And that's because you know, they were at the bottom of the pile. But apart from that, there was... And no then, problem. I suppose, you know, at a higher level socially, he would have encountered, he was a golfer, and he encountered routine kind of sectarian oh, yeah. attitudes oh, yeah. in the golf yeah. club. Yeah, in, in the early days, yes. Well, it was OK. You know, they sort of, if you were a Catholic, that was fine, you know, until you until you actually spoke out or said something that offended them. And Anton got on fine with them, you know, socially, it was no problem. And then uh, there was an open competition uh, in the beginning of the summer and he won it. And the custom was if you won the competition, you got, you did your own little plaque and it was put onto the bottom. So he did his plaque and he wrote his name in Irish on it. And then the following year on the night before the competition again, he had to leave it back, you know, for the winner the next day. And when they saw this, they all hell broke loose, they said. And they arrived at our door uh, to ask his permission to take it down, to take down the thing and put it up in English. And he said, no. He said, I write my checks in Irish. You never asked me to change it. So he didn't. And they took it down. I don't know if it's, if there's a gap. They actually prized the, the little plaque with his name and the year of yeah, his winning. Yeah, they took it off, off the, the bottom of the, the thing. Base. Yeah. And, uh, and Anton said, well, could you give me one good reason? And he said, well, the, the Lisburn ones were laughing at us at the, on the day. Imagine. It's unbelievable now. Yeah. But. Extraordinary times. It's oh. it's hard to kind of uh, imagine, believe, yeah. you know, from yeah. the perspective of yeah. the 2020s, yeah. that yeah. kind of thing happening within within living memory, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so you had the civil rights movement, the marches and so forth, and then you explained about the formation of the SDLP being necessary because of different agendas being yeah. brought into the um, NICRA. And very quickly then, by 1973, you had the Sunningdale Agreement, which brought power sharing. Oh, yes. Uh, admittedly, it, it collapsed, um, you know, in the face of the Ulster worker strike uh, in 1974. And of course, weakness by the British Labour government, uh, yeah. le led by Harold Wilson. And opposition by Sinn Féin. They didn't that, accept it either. Yeah. Um, they I mean, opposed it. Was one, it. Of the, one of the great missed opportunities. And then you had, what, a decade yeah. and a half. Yeah, it was a missed opportunity. But, you know, it was just the... The unionists were not prepared to give an inch. And in a sense, 
they had the same. Well, except for Mr. Faulkner and. Well, Faulkner did, and that was the the end of Faulkner. But, you know, as John Hume said at the time, partition didn't help the Unionists and it didn't help the Nationalists because the Unionists were all the time fearful that they were going to be taken over. Because if you listen to the rhetoric at election time from Mm. the South, too, you know about the fourth Greenfield and all that. So they had this fear, and the only way they thought they could keep themselves in the Union was by keeping the Catholics in their place. And that was the mentality. It was a sort of a, what we have, we hold, as they said, and yeah. not an inch. And it wasn't just Sinn Féin opposition to Sunningdale. I mean, there was the IRA campaign, yeah, which I yeah. think the Taoiseach of the Daily yeah. and Cosgrave des- yeah. described as effectively killing the desire for unity, uh, you know, on the part of a lot of, of, of nationalists. Now, um, quite recently, I think the current um, deputy leader of Sinn Féin, uh, Michelle O'Neill, mm. first minister-designate, mm was offering the view that, look, there really was no alternative to the armed struggle at that time. And there was a lot of a lot of violence at that stage, the IRA campaign. Well, you know, that is absolute rubbish, because if you think about it, the civil rights movement, peaceful marches, peaceful people marching, got the attention of the world, the attention of Westminster on it. And within two years, Derry Corporation had had been scrapped and it was an independent commission was put in. Uh, the new legislation was brought in on housing to, to stop the discrimination, and uh, the good the um, the jobs the uh, um, equality an equality commission was set up to deal with job discrimination. All of that came about in two years as a result of peaceful protest by. And, and of course, movement. the end. You mentioned Derry. I mean, the end of the mm. uh, the big campaign yeah. for one yeah. man, one vote. Yes, and that was that was done away with. So, in fact, there was another. There was a, a peaceful way forward. And then, when the SDLP was formed, and John Hume spelt out very clearly his message of building a new Ireland and doing it politically by persuasion and by actually analysing the problem and pressurising. You know the British government politically, and 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 getting persuading other governments, so that was all happening, and at that time, uh, the SDLP, of course, had the majority of support within the nationalist community because they believe they didn't believe in the violence, although there were grievances, and I would accept that. Of course, there were grievances, but the IRA were not fighting for equality; they were fighting to get the Brits out and to unite Ireland. And to unite Ireland by, at the point of a gun was would be as bad as partitioning Ireland, if you like, at the point of a gun. It's going to solve nothing. I think the peace process started when when John Hume wrote that first uh, document towards a new Ireland in which he spelt out what needed to be done, recognise the Unionists' right to be British, uh, find an accommodation, also need to accommodate the nationalist uh, aspiration of an All-Ireland and you'd have, have to find institutions that... And what year did he write that, Reid, remind us? 1972. That's a full, what, 26 years before the Good Friday Agreement? Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he John, as, as John's, as, as I said, kept repeating the same message and made it, no apologies and made for no it. And made no apology for it. But his message always was, you cannot unite the, the Irish people if you don't recognise who they are and what their, their conflicting aspirations and you accommodate them. 
And that's, he fought for that. He, he fought for it in America. He fought for it in, in Westminster, in Europe, everywhere. Same message. And, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, you know, the Good Friday Agreement's a bit like the GPO. Everyone that was in the G, if everyone who claims to be in the GPO were there, they wouldn't have held them all. But, you know, the Good Friday Agreement was a culmination of decades of hard political graft. Yes, and in the years between John Hume setting out that view and indeed the, the collapse of Sunningdale, uh, there was a series of failed initiatives. The yeah. violence went on, yeah. thousands yeah. of people died. Yeah. Uh, and then you had the the Anglo-Irish Agreement, the Hillsborough Accord, yeah. uh, to give it an alternative name mm. of 1985, mm. Garrett Fitzgerald, Margaret yeah. Thatcher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how important was that? That was absolutely crucial. That was a catalyst for change because, funnily enough, I heard it gave someone, the Irish government, sorry, Breach, a consultative role in yes, Northern Ireland. Yeah, and, and before that, I heard someone say recently, some pundit, that the only Irish teacher who ever did anything for the North was Albert Reynolds. Now, Albert Reynolds did a lot, there's no doubt about it, but he wasn't the only one. The Anglo-Irish Agreement, you see, the Unionists refused to talk and certainly wouldn't talk to the Irish government over the decades because they had no right to be talking to them. And Jim Molyneux, who was the, the leader of unionism, all he had to do was stay out of, keep away from engagement with anyone. And because they had a guarantee that there'd be no change in the constitutional status without, you know, without their consent, that was their problem. And they they were using that as a veto on progress, progress towards equality or towards fair, you know, fairness or anything like that. And when the Anglo-Irish Agreement happened, the unionists were not consulted. They were not in it. It was the two governments. And of course, the SDLP was very much involved along with Gareth Fitzgerald. And when that decision was made, it's the first time, if you like, that the unionist veto on progress was broken. And John Hume always argued that as long as they had a veto, nothing would change. And that broke the unionist veto. And after about a decade of persuasion... But it marked the, the, the it, was, it was a period when there was the breakdown in bipartisanship uh, among the political parties here because you had yeah. Charles Hockey, yeah. if you like, taking a harder line yeah. as leader of Fianna Fáil and Taoiseach uh, for a while. Yeah. Um, and for instance, at the New Ireland Forum, yeah. he stressed yeah. he, completely he it, the, yeah. Yeah. the unitary state yeah. Yeah. option. He yeah. called it the conclusion, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, was that, was that, was that perhaps in in a, in a strange way maybe helpful to Gareth Fitzgerald in arguing his case with Mrs. Thatcher for for concessions in the sense that look you look what look what I have to deal with over my shoulder back back in well Dublin. funnily enough I remember when do you remember the time that Mrs. Thatcher rejected all everything out, out, out. everything out 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 I was in the Senate at the time and there was consternation right throughout nationalist Republican every in in, in Ireland and. I remember going to see Garrett and saying, Garrett, and Garrett was saying nothing. He was keeping numb, stum. And I said, Garrett, you have to come out and say something because people people are up in arms. They really are. The Nationalists of the North are absolutely all, all ready. To, yeah. And he, his very words with me were, Breege, she has made a mistake and I can I now have her where I need to have her, where she has to talk to my me and my officials to remedy the, the harm she has done, so we will be working diplomatically for the, not shouting across the Irish Sea, and that's what they did. And for that whole, you know, uh, 
year after that, there was intense negotiations. But he did say, I think, um, at a Fine Gael parliamentary party meeting, he did describe what she had said as gratuitously offensive and that mm. obviously got its way into the public print. But yeah, he did show... He didn't start a, a ...forbearance. Yeah. Uh, as you say, he mm. used it as an opportunity to get yeah. her to do... Yeah. Uh, what he hoped she yeah. would do in terms of mm. giving the government here a, a say. say well, yeah. What did you think of Charles Hawhey during that period? I mean, he came along and he worked the agreement yeah. afterwards. Well, naturally, I was very angry because we thought the Anglo-Irish agreement, we knew it was a breakthrough. It was a real breakthrough. And for the Irish government to have a consultative role in the North, <clears throat> although it wasn't executive, it was consultative, it meant they had an office in the North, in Maryfield, <clears throat> which, of course, <laughs> was attacked and, you know, it was anathema to the unionists. But we, we, that, for us, that was a big breakthrough. And also, it meant that Northern civil, Irish civil servants were coming north to talk to us and discuss. And, you know, that we, we felt for the first time we had a real, con, a real physical connection mm. with uh, the rest of Ireland. And it was definitely a beginning of progress. And, and you had a route to through the Irish government that, that, that office in Maryfield the Department of Foreign yeah. Affairs Civil Service mm. uh, Servants mm. if you felt there was an issue that arose oh, yes. you could channel yeah. it through them and they would yeah. be able to I was using it, it for instance we had you know in those days all the, the statutory bodies that were set up if you were a Catholic it was very difficult to get on it unless you were seen as a as a very um, Obedient to be for a word, Catholic, a very good Catholic. Mm. Uh, and uh, I had the job of trying to get people onto those bodies. And of course, if you're SDLP, like you had no chance of getting on if you're associated with the SDLP. And I know I worked with Peter Barry, for instance, on that issue. And, and uh, we tried very hard. And actually, at that stage, the problem with the, the marching season was becoming very bad, particularly in my area in Portadown. And I was able to to talk to, to liaise with Peter Barry and see him and have discussions with him about what needed to be done. And he talked to his counterpart in the north. And that's how it came about that the march was actually banned because we had endless meetings with the police and they said, oh, no, no, if we ban it, there'll be murder and there'll be mayhem. And yeah, but was the initial solution that they banned it going through the heart of Porter Down, yeah. Oban Street, but yeah. then it moved to the Garavahi Road and that's well, when things really got bad. Well, actually... This, the bandit going through Open Street, which was a, I mean, it, it caused a lot of mayhem in the north at the time, but at least it was a, a, a signal that Catholics were getting recognition of their rights. And then they moved it to the Gavahi Road. And I said, I remember saying at the time, you know, you're going from a small Catholic enclave into a large Catholic enclave. And that's what happened. It became then an issue which was very obviously going to be an issue. But you see, the, the the Orange Order had to go through a Catholic area. It was no good going through any other area. That was the mentality. Yeah, and, and, and you had those years of tension and uh, uncertainty yeah. and expectations that, for instance, it would be stopped going down the Garvahi Road yeah, and then yeah. they caved in. Yeah, and actually Seamus Mallon was, was Deputy First Minister at the time when, it, when, when the whole thing went to put them down the road because Mo Molan was the Secretary of State. And I remember ringing Mark Dorkin at 12 o'clock at night and saying, Mark, there's terrible tension reported around there. They're terrified that they're going to be forced through. And he said he'd spoken to Mo Molan and Mo Molan had assured him that unless there was agreement, they wouldn't go through. But whatever happened after that, and I think it was the police 
who told their advice was that there was going to be complete civil war in Northern Ireland if they weren't allowed through. And she, on police advice, changed her mind. And yeah. it was I mean, awful. The, the, the backdrop to that, of course, was this long tradition, as you've explained, Breach, about orange marches and asserting their dominance over yeah. over Catholics and so forth. And I suppose the loudest mouth in all of that going down the decades was Ian Paisley. Of course, you know. And, you know, I broke all the rules when Ian Paisley died because, you know, you're not allowed to speak ill of the dead. And I just couldn't be dishonest because Ian Paisley was responsible for an awful lot of what happened. Paisley was there all the time, you know, egging people on and, you know, this is going to be a takeover by the South. You know, the usual thing he went on mm. with. And I know for a fact that a, a patient of my husband came in to him years ago and Anthony said to him, because he had patients from both sides of the community, said to him, haven't seen you for a while. And he said, oh, no. He said, I was in jail. He said, what happened to you? He said, well, he said, I went to a meeting of Dr. Paisley's and uh, the very next day I joined the UVF. And he said, it's the worst thing I ever did. He was caught with arms and he was jailed. So it just shows you the the... the impact he had on the community at that time and it was very bad and you know I know people say now he was wonderful and all the rest of it when he eventually but he only compromised when he was top of the heap Yeah I mean there was that uh, extraordinary development I think it was 2007 mm. they took office the mm. St Andrews Agreement which drew the DUP into yeah. the yeah. Good Friday Agreement yeah. which they had previously mm. vociferously opposed and then you had that coalition, um, Sinn Féin uh, and, yeah, and the yeah. DUP, Mark McGuinness, Deputy First Minister, Ian Paisley, mm. um, First Minister, who got on so well. Well, they did. Well, I think in fairness, Martin McGuinness, uh, I had respect for Martin because even when I was in the, in the executive and he was Minister for Education, I always found Martin very... Um, he understood politics, you know, and I remember during the foot and mouth crisis, I had to put a, um, I had to put the army into a very Republican area in you North. You were Minister for Agriculture. Yeah, at that and I, I had to put. We were running into difficulty with getting all the carcasses burnt and disposed of, and my officials told me, you know, we're going to have to put the army in because this is not working for us. And into Arbo, which is a very Republican area, and I said, well, so I rang Martin and I said, Martin, told him what the story was. He said, go ahead. He says, there won't be any trouble. And there wasn't. There so, was a fear that... There was a fear that they would be attacked by the IRA, naturally. You even know. though they were on ceasefire at that yeah, stage. Yeah, but, you know, to, to put British Army into our bow, you know, that at least there would be riots, you know. So it didn't happen. But in fairness, they did get on well and it looked good. But, you know, it doesn't wipe out what Paisley had done, which, with the damage he had done in the meantime. And by the way, at St Andrews, they changed the rules of the Good Friday Agreement and they changed the rules that instead of the whole uh, assembly voting for the first and deputy first minister, each one voted for their own. The unionists voted for their man or woman and the nationalists voted for theirs. So that immediately set up a kind of a tribal situation. The result of which was that you had two silos and it never really worked. You know, the good, because of that, it wasn't a partnership and it wasn't a partnership of 
of of people who wanted reconciliation. It was a partnership of two people looking after yeah, their somebody own. Somebody described it to me as not so much sharing power as dividing power. It was dividing power. And by the way, dividing power was dividing power between the supporters of one uh, and, and the supporters of another. Like, if you happen to be uh, not a supporter, we'll say, of Sinn Féin or of the DUP, you weren't going to be looked on very kindly, but it was it was a division of the spoils. That's what it was, uh, the spoils of office. And I think it didn't work because, in a sense, uh, unexpected consequences or unforeseen consequences, it it created a situation in the assembly where there is now a new veto. It's not the unionist veto now; it's the veto of the larger party on both sides who can veto whatever they don't like and close up shop as they have done. And that's not working. And I often think if John Hume were about now, what would he be saying? And I hear, um, I know that Michelle O'Neill went to uh, Washington recently and her key thing was to pressurise the British government to get uh, the Assembly back. But that's not the key issue. The key issue should be to pressurise the British government to have a review of the agreement along with the Irish government and see what's wrong and put it right so that the veto is gone. But, you know, the two main parties involved now never talk about that because the veto suits them. And now. do you believe, Dan Breach, that do you trace the, the, the origins of that back to the St Andrews Agreement? I do. I think it it created a tribal situation. It it the After that, what was lost was the sense of um, reconciliation and needing to work together on all the issues. For instance, foot and mouth was 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 one where we all worked together and I had no problems. And then Reg MP went down the first week of the new uh, executive. He went down to Dublin to talk to Mary O'Rourke and they got agreement on a gas pipeline into the north. And that was what was meant to happen with the new uh, the new setup. And did, did Paisley get a bit too far ahead of his own people oh, he did, in the yeah, DUP and the way he yeah, related and yeah. worked and chuckled with McGuinness? Yeah, he did, of course he did. I mean, you can't tell people for years and years and years, you know, that that they are the enemy and that, you know, you can't even cont- contemplate talking to them and suddenly you're seeing cosy. No, that that's what was the end of him. Was it inevitable, <coughs> though, that uh, Sinn Féin on the nationalist side and the DUP on the unionist side would become... The big dogs, if you like. Um, Well, I think, I honestly think that the governments came to the decision that the only way they could get an agreement is to to mollycoddle them, if you like, until such time as they they could agree. And uh, they were, you know, they gave as much support to to each side as they, to each of these two parties. As Seamus Mallon was very strong on that. Seamus was strong and I was in Hillsborough the night that he complained about it because we were the larger party and we were being left out of some of the negotiations and um, Seamus complained to Blair about it that night and Blair said, well, he said, you have no guns. And, you know, I was shocked because what was the message? You know, what was the message? And in fairness, apart from everything else, John, the vision that John Hume had is you cannot solve the Irish question either by partition or by a united Ireland unless you get consensus among the people of Ireland. Decommissioning from Good Friday 
to it actually happening and being complete took seven years. It was 2005 yeah, before it happened. Yeah. Do you reckon there was part of a calculation that, uh, OK, maybe Adams and McGuinness had difficulty persuading yeah, others to go yeah, along with it, yeah. but that maybe Sinn Féin and, and the IRA were holding back on it so they had something to trade with the DUP? Well, I, I don't know what their motive was. Uh, I know that at the time that they were delaying the new commissioning in the early days, they knew, and I remember pointing it out to some of them at the time that they were going to, that the unionists were losing confidence, that they were that their support for the Good Friday Agreement was waning by the day, because, because they were told that Sinn Fein, as they they saw as IRA people in government without decommissioning, was a no-no, and yet. They were promised it and it wasn't happening. So it really destroyed the confidence of the unionist community. And uh, I think at then all of the focus on the media and everywhere for all those years was on Sinn Féin. Will they decommission? Won't they decommission? When will they decommission? They were never off the airwaves. And I think a whole generation then was imbued with the idea that these were the people who were creating the peace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people forget sometimes what people forget. And, and I think you... that they managed to, to eke it out as long as they could while they were still, you know, as you said, they were leaving themselves in a position of delivering. Yeah, and the situation now is, I think, in the most recent local government elections, the STLP has something like uh, 39 seats. Mm. Sinn Féin has about 140. Mm. Uh, are there about far, far bigger on the nationalist side? Oh, yeah. Um, mm. Is there a future for the STLP? Well, we have some very... I mean, I listen to Matthew O'Toole in South Belfast and he has very, very good ideas. It's very difficult when you go down that low mm. to claw your way back. But... I hope there is a future for the SDLP because if you really want to build a new Ireland, you're not going to do it by convincing the unionists that they're, for want of a better word, screwed and the best way to get get used to it. You have to find a way of creating relationships. And I think that uh, the the SDLP, like people like Claire Hannan and Matthew O'Toole, those, those people, they understand, they understand John Hume's vision. They understand what needs to be done. And if they're not there, I don't know how it's going to work out. I I cannot see a situation, for instance, where unionists will agree to a new Ireland or a united Ireland unless they're convinced that... The yeah, twin- but we hear we hear from Sinn Féin north and south and they're getting stronger mm. uh, with every passing election. Argue that now is the time to start preparing for a border poll, for having discussions about yeah, the kind yeah, of New Ireland yeah, there would yeah. be. Absolutely. I think it's a good thing to talk about it and to engage. And they complain about... They, they want to engage with unionists as well. And of course, we have to engage with unionists. But you look at the commemorations for the IRA who shot the brothers and mothers and fathers of these unionist people. And but they say, as you know, yeah. Michelle O'Neill mm. defending John Finucane yeah. recently in, in uh, South Armagh, mm. you know, every community has the right to commemorate their dead. Of course they have. We all have rights. But we also have to realise that we are, if we're trying to bring people with us to come to a conclusion that suits everyone, there's no point in poking poking them in the eye and they uh, you know I know that that's in they see that as commemorating IRA men who probably in South Armagh 
for instance, shot an awful lot of, a lot of Catholics were shot mm-hmm. too, you know. And the people there who suffered are not going to be uh, enticed to start talking about a united Ireland if that's continuing. So I think it's one thing to talk, but you have to walk, yeah. you know. And I, I know, I understand what they're saying because they, it was the IRA that, and headed by Martin McGuinness and Jerry Alvin, who actually convinced those people to go out and do what they did and fight for a united Ireland and Brits out. And they did it. They didn't get it, by the way. They didn't get New United Ireland. They didn't get Brits out because that was not going to happen. And therefore, you can see that their people, I mean, the IRA people's relations would feel badly now if they were sort of, you know, ignored. But by the same token, you know, you you have to find a way, I think maybe one commemoration of all the victims or of all... Yeah, um, it's it's just I don't think you're going. I I know Northern Unionists very well over the years, and a lot, quite a lot of them are very decent people. I know when the civil rights movement started, and when I was involved, and we had some hassle from local people, Unionists. You know, they had no idea what was going on in the north. They were living a great life. They didn't know what Catholics were suffering, and there are a lot of them who I think now are persuadable particularly with Brexit. People are, you know, they didn't like being taken out of the European Union. A lot of people, unionists in the North, they voted, they, they, they voted against Brexit. And I think they are persuadable. But if you're going to persuade them, you have to understand, as Nelson Mandela once said to us, you have to put yourself in the shoes of your opponent. And it's not what you want, it's what you have that you can give them. And I thought that was very wise. Mm. Um, I want to go back a little bit to, to you know, the, 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 the worst times. Um, and you were in Lurgan, as we say, um, and there was an awful lot of sectarian killing there, close to South Armagh as well, <clears throat> a strong Republican area, uh, a lot of British soldiers getting shot by, by snipers. Um, did you, and, and then you were in the thick of trying to support people in the Garvahi Road area um, against those marches. Did you ever feel, were you frequently threatened physically? Did you fear for your own safety much? Well, I would have been threatened at times when I, you know, for instance, there was a bomb in Portadown. I think at the time when we were during the negotiations, the Good Friday Agreement, and I went down because the IRA had put off a bomb in the middle of Portadown. And when I arrived, of course, you know, people were interviewing me and I was being practically spat on by the loyalists around me. But I was all right because I wasn't, I don't think I was in danger. But uh, I, I got sometimes phone calls. And the strange thing is that our, my phone was ex-directory. And I remember getting phone calls even during civil rights time. Now, who who knew my phone number? Uh, threatening phone calls and one of them was during the loyalist strike and I'll never forget it this voice said if I were you I wouldn't leave the children in the house on their own and at that time I used to have to go into civil rights meetings in Mm. the centre of Lorgan and you know those kind of threats but do you know what I always thought if they're going to shoot you they don't don't tell you in advance but maybe they do (laughs) I don't know Well some people might have had warnings Yeah. um, yeah And it was just something you felt you just had to resist. Well, you ha- you you just 
do you know what? Everybody was everybody was in danger in those days. You didn't you didn't have to be involved in anything, if you were just an ordinary person going about your business, and most of them were, and mm. they lost their lives. So, you you worked very closely, obviously, with two giants of uh, the SDLP, John Hume mm. and Seamus Mallon. Two totally different figures. Two totally different figures. You know, like, I remember one time John came down to canvas for Seamus and Armagh in the very early days. And, you know, they had these badges on them, orange and white badges. And John said to Seamus, you know, the SDLP colours are green and red. Seamus put his eyes and he said, John, that's the RMR colours. <laughs> you know, I mean, John wouldn't have been into all that stuff at all uh, about Gaelic football and everything. And they were two very different personalities. They were alike in many ways, but they both believed in the same things and they had their different way of approaching it. They kind of complemented one another, you know. Seamus, Seamus was very good with... Um, ordinary people on the ground all the time, you know. And uh, uh, John was good at that too now. Seamus was seen maybe as a bit greener, a bit Charlie. He was, he, put he him was. In the Shannad. He was seen yeah. as closer maybe to, to Fianna Foyle yeah. during that period yeah. in the yeah. early 80s. Yeah. And I think they were gravely disappointed in him when he backed the, yeah. the Good Friday Agreement uh, yes. in 85. Yeah. I remember writing in the Irish press at the time yeah. that Seamus Mallon was the best salesman for that Good Friday Oh yeah, agreement. well Seamus was always seen as... as Greener, you know, than John, uh, and uh, but you know, if you think about it, Seamus was green. He was very green, but he also understood what needed to be done, and he always wanted to get the end result, which was a new Ireland. So he knew where he was going. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with being very orange or very green, really. But he was seen as that end of the SDLP, and people always put them up against one another. But you know. That's politics, you know, people. I remember being at meetings where, you know, John would propose something and then there'd be a whole discussion about it and people would want to change this and change that. And I have some of the notes where people, where John's scribbled out something and put in another word, you know. And eventually they all agreed with what John was proposing because John was the strategist, you know, really. Uh, And Seamus was the one who managed to carry the message into places like South Armagh, which was very Republican, mm-hmm. you know. See, Derry was never very Republican. Derry was a different city. It wasn't a sectarian city in those days. But, I mean, South Armagh, where Seamus was operating, was very Republican. And yet he was able to, you know... And, of course, getting that seat uh, when all the unionists resigned after the Anglo-Irish Agreement and yeah. Seamus got elected yeah, yeah, uh, for yeah, Newry and Armagh yeah, to, yeah, to Westminster... Yeah. That was the making of them, wasn't it? It was. I mean, we didn't run that time. We usually ran in all constituencies, but we took a decision that we had to concentrate on. So we didn't run. And I went into Seamus's constituency and he gave me an area to deal with. And I went away at eight o'clock every morning and I never came back till night time. And we canvassed every house in that area. It was mixed because there was Tandragee and there was Points Pass, which was mixed Tandragee some very strong unionist areas. And uh, I remember it was fantastic. I mean, Mark Durkin was running the election and I remember Eamon Malley ringing me uh, two nights before the election and he said, what do you think? I said, I think Seamus is going to win by about 2,000 votes. And he said, Bridge, I'm from South Armagh. You don't know South Armagh. Well, I said, well, you see. (laughs) 
Mally wasn't agreeing with you, no? Uh, no, he thought he thought Seamus wouldn't make it. But he won it by 2,000 votes. <laughs> well done, you. I mean, you mightn't have been a match teacher, but you could obviously do the sums. Um, when, well, when... I was on the ground. I was, to, I was around that whole area and I knew that people, the people that were, you know, changing their yeah. minds. Um, I want you to tell me a little bit more, Breach, uh, about your time as Minister for Agriculture in that um, first uh, executive after the, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you mentioned the foot and mouth, mm. but it was a kind of a, it was, it was, it was territory that was kind of new to you and initially quite hostile in, in parts, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I, apart from anything else, I had never been in opposition, let, let alone in government. My only experience of anything near government was in the Senate. And certainly uh, when I went into the department, I knew that, you know, the Ulster Farmers Union were notoriously unionist you know there was a, there was the, the there was another union which would have been seen as the catholic union which is less but the ulster farmers union were the big representatives of agriculture strong strong loyal. Lo- strong loyal ulster unionists and uh, men of the soil as they say they were the, the tory party were seen as the the church of england at prayer and the ulster farmers union was seen as the Unionist Party with clabber on their boots. <laughs> so I knew it was going to be tough and I got kind of a frosty reception the first day I went in because the receptionist, who was not a young woman, kind of turned, she didn't want to have to see me, so she turned her back on me. And The new minister arriving. Yeah, the yeah she, didn't, she didn't sort of shake hands or say anything. Anyway, I was going to go over and shake hands with her, but anyway... I have to say, my my, I had I have I had a great uh, secretary, uh, general secretary. They were all great, and the officials were all great and worked with me. and never had any problem with that. And when the foot and mouth happened, uh, I had to meet the industry every day. Every the whole of the industry were represented by different people, and I knew that I was anathema to a lot of these people that I was meeting. And one of them in particular was known as Black Ball. But anyway, he, he was mid-Ulster and he represented the pig industry and he was very, very Paisleyite and very anti, um, particularly anti-me because of Gavai Road. <laughs> and someone told me that about after the first week when I met them every day, <laughs> he turned around to someone and he said, ah, I can't word, can I use an expletive? He said, ah, fuck it, she's doing a good job. And... <laughs> I thought, well, my God, I don't, never thought I'd hear Black Bob saying that. But, you know, it, it, show, it was a, I could see John Hume's mantra of when you work the common ground together, you will begin to build new relations. And we were actually literally working the common ground. And they were seeing me uh, not as an enemy, but as someone who was working for them and with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a kind of a a great example of what can happen when people who are opposed, are very opposed to one another, uh, begin to work together? And it, it was a great experience, I must say. And uh, and, and the Ultra Farmers Union, actually, the year after uh, the executive fell, they presented me with the prize for the person who had done most for the agriculture industry that, that year. That was an unlikely turn Which of was events. an unlikely turn of events. So, no, but it just goes to show you that relationships can be built mm. and they can only be built by recognising other people's uh, so, different... So, as you look at the scene now, things are stuck. Uh, 
all all because of Brexit, which nobody foresaw yeah, yeah. Uh, at the time of the the Good Friday Agreement, and you know you've got the you you've got the uh, Windsor framework. Mm. It seems to be you know the case that the, maybe the DUP are edging back towards participating again, but it, mm. it, it's hard to see the way forward, isn't it? Well. I believe that Geoffrey Donaldson wants to to get back into the thing. But it's the old, old story of, as John Hume said, if the word no was taken out of the English language, the unionists would be speechless. I mean, he meant at that stage way back when they were saying no to everything. But th- there is something... Th- th- there doesn't seem to be the courage of taking on the hard line. And there's always... If you look at... Um, what do you call him, the, the Jim Jim Allister, who represents the very, very hard line. It's only a one-man band. And he's actually dictating virtually to Donaldson what should be done. And he's actually emotionally using the, the emotion of the not an inch. Yeah, uh, but there are others there, though. I mean... Peter Robinson, Arlene Foster, yeah. they were two people yeah. brought in, yeah. both former yeah. deputy, sorry, both mm. former first mm. ministers uh, to sit on this committee, which yeah. was going to look at ways of, yes. you know, sort yeah. of seeing if they could finesse the thing. Um, but, you know, is it the old story? Oh, you can't do anything before the marching season? Or Well, there might be a little bit of that in it. I think there is a little bit of that in it, but I think also that... Uh, but he, he want, Donaldson wants to avoid a split in the party. I, he's going to lose some of them anyway, I think. But I think he's work. He, I imagine that he's working very hard at trying to mm. explain to people why they should. I mean, he's afraid of of, of getting the same as Trimble got, which was the end of Trimble's career. Uh, but it's different times, and it really should be easier for him now because. Uh, you know, the Brexit thing is a is a big incentive for people that were annoyed at being taken out of, of of the European Union. And Brexit has actually changed the whole argument. Yeah. Really. And finally, wh- wh- what do you make of Michelle O'Neill as a politician? How do you rate her? Uh, well, I think she's doing very well now. She's, uh, pre- she's uh, presenting herself very well and she's slowed down. She used to talk very fast and she's... Um, I think she's coming. I think a lot of people think she's coming across very well, uh, but I think I've I never see her taking on a debate. I've never, you know, for instance, during going into the council elections, uh, every party leader had to meet with um, Carruthers and you know be quizzed on them. That's on the BBC, and all yeah, that, yeah, it? and um, all the party leaders did attend and they were quizzed upside down. She didn't do it. Conor Murphy did it and. Yeah, well, maybe that maybe she just doesn't feel happy mm. doing that. But I think she's, you know, she's she's putting forward a good image, and uh, I think it's it's resonating with people. But um, she still believes there was no alternative, and to my mind, that is no alternative to violence. Is no no because there was always an alternative, and the peop- a lot of the people who are in the graveyards now would be still alive if they had chosen the alternative. The alternative was a bit slow. It took three decades to get to the Good Friday Agreement and to get agreement, but and also requires the British government to show some uh, appetite. And I think at the moment the British government are, have other problems. Reed Rogers. 
Thank you so much indeed uh, for, for coming to studio today. It's been an absolute uh, privilege to listen to you. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. You're very welcome, Sean. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.